This is Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. Hello and welcome to Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. It's been a while, in fact it's been about a month, but I'm back with uh, the political editor Paul Francis. How are you doing Paul? I'm well, thank you Ollie. Yeah, we haven't been here since before the election, have we? I know, and it's kind of weird that the election took place and it's sort of almost not forgotten about exactly, but that whole period of the campaign was so intense and so kind of, you know frenzied that uh, it then suddenly went all very quiet. It feels like it never really happened. And well, it did. <laughs> it did, yeah. It's not, a, it's not a dream or a nightmare. How long did it take you to recover from the twelve-hour live broadcast on KMTV? Overnight? Well, uh, I feel a bit bad about complaining about it because three of the other guys involved did twenty-four-hour stints. So, but it didn't take me as long as I thought it was going to be. Actually, I must say that is intense. Twenty-four hours is 24 twelve hours, hours is, is pretty bad, but uh, twenty-four is much, much more of an ordeal. Not that I want to blow our own trumpet as a as a organization but i think we did a pretty good job of covering that night didn't we We did yes we had we what amazed me is we managed to get people in to talk in the wee small hours of the morning so mm. uh, that was uh, that was very good I, I, there, there was a moment i must be honest where we thought you'd fallen asleep on the couch though <laughs> yeah i mean it was by the time we came to record the that day's version of paul on politics show i came away not really uh, having any idea of what I'd said to the guests, and yeah. which is probably no bad thing. No, no, perhaps not. But I suppose that's what happens at any any time you're going to be doing a twelve hour stint yes. on anything. So yeah, we survived on vapors <laughs> and yeah. jelly beans, oh, jelly, jelly beans, beans and yeah. mini sausage rolls were the order of the day. Which, which in hindsight, my bowels did not like. No, I've got to be honest, it probably was, isn't. It was a good combination on the night, but not. On the day after the night. No, no, don't don't recommend that to any any listeners at all. Um, right, so so now we're back. Um, we're election back, yeah. all over. Uh, Boris Johnson is our prime minister, and uh, Brexit is pretty fast approaching. So we got a deadline coming up. We have, but what's interesting for me is that uh, the the third reading of the Brexit withdrawal bill passed without hardly a murmur of. Uh, argument or dispute and that's obviously a reflection partly a reflection of the you know the sizable majority that Boris Johnson has got but uh, you contrast that with you know what happened under Theresa May when she was prime minister and the kind of you know the nail-biting vote counting and the defeats that she suffered and then come the third reading of the bill with Boris Johnson in number 10 with an 80 plus 80 seat plus majority and it just passes without anyone really noticing. It went from from being, I mean, like you say, it was flip flopping back and forth to the point where I felt like there was absolutely, you know, democracy in the house was was almost dead because it was it was just a roadblock. And then, as you say, once once that majority had been got, it it went through without a hitch at all. Yeah, and uh, I, I, you know, it was obviously down to the fact that uh, Boris Johnson had secured his victory on the basis of this pledge to get Brexit done, and you know, they are getting Brexit done. How whatever you feel about it. Is it going to go smoothly, though? Will we hit the 31st? Because there, there are still a number of things to be worked out. There are a number of EU representatives that have said there may not be enough time to get everything ironed out before the 31st in terms of a deal. We still have to have 27 EU countries to agree on everything as well and for that to be passed. So there's a, there's a lot still to be done. There is, yeah. I mean, I think the mistake some people might be making is that thinking that the, you know once we've got the Brexit bill done, that's it, basically. 
But as you say, there's this period of transition which comes into effect whereby all these tricky, potentially awkward issues around trade negotiations, trade deals have all got to be uh, sewn up. Well, Boris Johnson says he wants it sewn up by January of next year. Now, I think that's a bit of a stretch personally, given some of the complicated kind of inv- uh, negotiations that these that's going to be involved. And um, the uh, fact that if he wants an extension, he's got to decide by June. So I don't I mean, obviously, he's on record as saying he doesn't want an extension. Uh, but if he does, then it's it'll be June where when he has to make that decision. I, you know, I don't see that happening personally, but uh, it kind of does Constantino the kind of the, the program for um, getting out of the, the EU. I think what probably will happen is that the government will get some some sort of deal on some of the kind of key areas like free movement of people etc and then park a lot of the other stuff and say we'll we'll deal with that in the in the following year because there are there are big things that things that have been well documented by the media over the past three years that have still to be worked out for example fishing waters is going to be a huge one that still needs to be decided and uh, i mean the backstop as well you've got you've got these these things that have taken over that that took over our media for a number of months and years which we're forgetting we still haven't completely decided on yet. Yeah, quite, yeah. And, I, you know, this is a two-sided coin. The, the UK's announced it's going, has voted for it to go, has got the legal uh, decision taken, as it were, through Parliament, but it still has to be sort of ratified and rubber-stamped by the EU. And as you say, the 27 member states have all got to agree the terms of the UK's departure, and that that will be in the next couple of weeks uh, ahead of the th- January the 31st deadline. So it will be interesting to see what kind of mood music is struck by the European Union when it comes to kind of uh, ratifying the UK's decision. I think as well we'll um, obviously on that 3rd of February which is the, the Monday after we have left after January the 31st we'll obviously have a podcast that day and we'll have a chat about some of the specificities of actually what it's meant because there are still things that are unclear so I'm, I'm actually in Berlin over that weekend so Lucky I'll be, you yeah I know so you could swerve by Brussels yeah, I wonder if I'll get back um, yeah, so yeah. I'll be going back through customs again in the weekend and it'll be interesting to see if, if anything noticeable has, has changed I imagine not well, uh, it's an important point, and the point leads, is probably going to lead on to our next area of discussion, is that uh, once we've signed the deal, and uh, based on the assumption that the EU agrees to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the deal decision, uh, then there is a period of uh, 10 months or so, 10 or 11 months, whereby all the current arrangements around you know, things like customs checks, border checks, etc., uh, you know, trade, uh, live animal exports, and all that, all those kind of issues, remain completely as they are. So there'll be no immediate change. You know, so you know the idea that you suddenly need a different set of papers to go across the channel to to France for a weekend or whatever, or go shopping in their hypermarkets. Nothing's going to change in, in that respect because there is this period whereby you know the two sides will be trying to hammer out the. The details dot the i's and cross the t's on various trade negotiations and just to be clear paul at this point in time is there any chance at all that we could end up leaving without a deal is that is that completely off the table now or could that in theory still happen? no in theory it still could happen but i don't think there's a political appetite for it to happen in in that way uh, and i think it suits or will suit both kind of sides 
to be able to say that they've hammered out some kind of loose arrangement, even if it doesn't, uh, you know, in- incorporate every single uh, aspect of the trade negotiations and the kind of terms of departure and the issues around kind of border security. So I think there'll be some kind of attempt to get some kind of headline, uh, eye-catching headline ag- agreement, and then say, well, we've got we've done the bulk of it. We'll have to come back to some of these other issues. And, you know, people often have talked about the fact that it took Canada seven years or eight years, I can't remember, to negotiate a set of trade agreements with the EU. But we already have those trade agreements in place. Uh, so it's not as if we're starting, the UK is starting from you know a completely blank sheet of paper. There are already trade deals in place. So it has that to fall back on. And that's not to say they're going to get everything done by a year's time, because I don't think they will. But perhaps a slightly smoother transition than than some are predicting. Maybe. Yeah, and yeah. also this idea that uh, January thirty first marks some cliff edge, which will all topple over <laughs> into the English Channel from the White Cliffs of Dover, is not really a, a sort of viable or tenable one. Talking points, Ken's politics podcast. Labour leadership, that's a yes. pretty big deal, isn't it? Yeah, one consequence of Brexit uh, that is uh, still uh, generating a great deal of interest is who is going to succeed Jeremy Corbyn, and we'll get. Some idea who's who's going to who's met the the threshold today later on today or this week. Uh, yeah, so presu- I mean potentially if you're listening to this podcast, it may have already happened. Yes. So if you do want to find out, obviously head to head to Kentonline.co.uk. Yes, and Paul yeah. will have prepared a lovely story for you to read about that. Um, but I mean, we have a couple of front runners anyway, don't we? There's a couple of people who are, have been earmarked as favourites so far. Yes, Keir Starmer, the former Attorney General, Shadow Attorney General. Uh, and Rebecca Long-Bailey, who has spent most of her time dismissing suggestions that she's the Jeremy Corbyn continuity candidate, but uh, that's how a lot of people see. Uh, uh, So they are the two current front-runners for the role. I mean, I think, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about, you know, why would you want to go for the Labour leadership uh, role immediately after you've suffered a kind of, you know... A terrible drubbing at an election at the hands of voters who didn't really believe you're a credible party. Uh, it's a bit like being the you know the next football manager after Alex Ferguson. You know you got so much in this case not necessarily to live up to. But I was going to say <laughs> but, not but, successes, but yeah, uh, you're kind of operating in the shadow uh, of you know a disastrous defeat for the party, and it really is you know a case of sort of almost rebuilding it from from nothing. Uh, because they did perform so badly. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the period of uh, when Labour was in its pomp and won three elections and the Conservative Party went through three leaders before they got to uh, the fourth uh, and won an election. So, And I think there's a sort of a comparison to be made with Labour and its possible years in the wilderness that, uh, that are looming. Yeah, because... Uh, and, and the point that, that I think a lot of people are making as well is... Yes, it looks like Keir Starmer it is a, is a fairly strong out a popular vote here, as well as Rebecca Long Bailey. But traditionally, it's not always the people that seem to be the favourites that end up being the leaders in the end. Yeah, Miliband won, but the wrong Miliband in some people's <laughs> eyes. Uh, he so Ed Miliband won when everyone thought his brother David Miliband was uh, the, the the one to, uh, to to take on the role. Uh, and before that, we had. No, oh, he's he's gone. He's gone. This is <laughs> this is a consequence of staying up 
it's so a, a long. Month, a month I'm later. blaming. I'm blaming the the Brexit it's all night coverage. Still affecting you. Still affecting you. Well, I mean, of course, yeah. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't really yes, expected. Jeremy Corbyn, yeah, uh, to, to be le- uh, to be leader. Partly because he came from you know a fairly far left stance, which was a yeah, previously he, a, a fairly centrist Labour government, and he only made it onto the, the the ballot the last minute. And I think I'm right in saying that it was the former. Foreign Secretary or Deputy Leader Margaret Beckett, who uh, who cast a vote, which meant that he would get onto the final ballot, and has regretted it <laughs> ever since. Mm. And 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 like as you say, we may now be in Labour's further wilderness years before we. I mean, some people are predicting that that we might not see another Labour government now until the end of this decade. I, I think that's entirely likely. I mean, I think it's you know. They're, they're going to be kind of rebuilding in the first five years, and that seems an awful long time to say you know, rebuilding a party. But I think the scale of their defeat has left them with lots of questions which they haven't yet found the answers to. Which means Boris Johnson, uh, interestingly, is the Conservatives are planning to abolish the fixed term parliament uh, legislation, which will allow them to call a, an election at a time of their choosing. So we may get an election, next election in three or four years' time. Uh, and that probably would be way too early for uh, Labour to be in a position where it can mount a kind of credible kind of challenge to the Conservatives. So it's it, it's possible they'll go for an early election. Uh, I know that most people don't want an election at <laughs> so soon, but uh, I think they will seek to kind of exploit their position by going a bit earlier, personally, at a time when Labour may be still kind of uh, internal navel-gazing uh, and trying to decide what it stands for, mm. and of course our our Labour MP for Kent, Rosie Duffield, is backing Jess Phillips, who uh, is not as favourite as Rebecca Long Bailey and Keir Starmer, but she's still up there somewhere. Yeah, she is, yeah. And I think you know one of the questions for a lot of Labour supporters is, you know, isn't it time that we had a female leader of the party, the only major party which hasn't yet had a female leader. And I think that is it. There is an issue there, in terms of um, you know sellability to the public. Uh, take some of the kind of you know heat out of the testosterone uh, fueled exchanges that we often see in Parliament. But I don't know whether Jess Phillips is is the one to do that. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I, I see her more as an effective deputy leader. Mm. Well, it's interesting as well that uh, that, that maybe that feelings about that being an issue that there hasn't been a a woman leader for the, for Labour is is echoed in the people who are currently higher up in the candidate rankings because yeah. obviously you have Keir Starmer but you also have Rebecca Long Bailey, Lisa Nandy, Jess Phillips, Emily Thornbury. Yes. So perhaps that's a. I mean, they, 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 you know, I think it would be madness if they didn't at least have a deputy leader who was uh, a woman. Um, but you know. I think it has been an issue for Labour, uh, and I just think you know having someone who was uh, you know not interested in this kind of you know attritional kind of you know in-your-face style of politics might actually be a better uh, a better proposition for the party. This is Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. So, Paul, I have to ask a question because I'm confused, and the rest of the county are confused. What? is going on with Operation Brock. All oh, right. Well, we'll have to have an extended podcast for this one, I think. We'll do a separate <laughs> it's an hour-long so, podcast. Well, uh, Operation Brock uh, was the uh, scheme 
designed as a contingency measure for a no-deal Brexit scenario, uh, which is obviously uh, something which could have happened, uh, but ha thankfully in some ways hasn't happened. And it was the... Uh, I don't know whether I need to explain this to our listeners, but I will. It's the, it's the introduction of uh, various traffic management measures along the M20, uh, which uh, are designed or was designed to ensure that traffic kept moving on the M20 instead of being kind of gridlocked and held uh, in, a, in in an area which turned the M20 into a huge lorry park. Mm. Any listeners that will have driven down the M20 will probably have experienced the misery of the 50 mile an hour limit. And the and narrow lanes, yep. those, yeah. Uh, but, you know, now where we are where we are politically with Brexit, the uh, the scheme is being decommissioned in the language that they like to use and that means it's being taken away so the m20 will be restored to its normal uh its former glory former glory yes <laughs> uh and you won't be traveling at 50 miles an hour uh swerving to, to avoid uh lorries uh but not immediately because uh it's going to take two weeks for the highways england and the various other authorities to dismantle operation brock and this is this cost the taxpayer thirty five million, and that's yeah. only so far, right? Because that that cost is going to mount all the time. They need to remove the barrier over the next yes. sixteen nights. Thirty five million is the kind of ballpark figure as to where things are in terms of current costs that have been uh, incurred in uh, implementing Operation Brock. Uh, you know, surprise you an awful lot of uh, traffic cones. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how many. Um, but uh, that 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 figure covers the design of this scheme, uh, the scheme, some the manpower in, involved in uh, putting it uh, into into operation. But it does look as though we are finally seeing the end of what has become, in some ways, kind of a sort of symbol of uh, Brexit. You know, a real physical sort of. Because I guess with some of these lofty political concepts, it's difficult to, to find a exactly. physical manifestation. But Ot Brock was that yes. for Kent. And it's a kind of metaphor for kind of political, you know, shenanigans and not... thought you were going, going to drop a, drop a swear bomb there. Yeah, no, I wasn't going to drop a shen <laughs> uh, shenanigans. You know, moving slowly, you know, getting sidelined into kind of congested areas of policy. Uh, so, yes, that's, that's my kind of... Uh, uh, feeling about uh, Operation Brock. I think it has, you know, it's not been welcomed by anybody that I can think of, apart from maybe the, the highways officers who've apparently got lots of overtime. Uh, Good for them. As a result of it. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the interesting things has been that the Kent MPs have been on the Department of Transport's case um, ever since the the election result uh, and I think the reason they've been on their case is not just because there's a genuine um, you know concern about it becoming a permanent fixture as it were but because it also gives them buy-in to showing that you know they've had some success you know in terms of pushing the, uh, the government to uh, get rid of it uh, knowing that you know their constituents suffer have suffered the kind of the uh, the imposition of this unwelcome management traffic management scheme for for some months for no reason now as well for no reason yes for no yeah. good reason but i mean i suppose the other side of the argument ollie is that you know if there hadn't been a, a scheme in place and we had ended up with a no deal brexit then you know the kind of gridlock and congestion and disruption and chaos 
might arguably have been even worse. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the, the government has sort of had to um, square that, uh, I, you know, that scenario uh, in terms of its planning. And, you know, it's always better to have some kind of plan rather than no plan at all. So I think you know, there are, to be fair, as we always like to be fair on this podcast, there are two sides to the argument. Absolutely, absolutely. But only two lanes along the M20. <laughs> yeah, have fun on the M20. Yeah. Um, so uh, before we leave, as we always do, got to give a bit of uh, bit of jargon. Paul always gives me a bit of jargon of the week and, and, and I look perplexed whilst he explains it. So I'm just going to read a sentence out. Um, this is a, a bit of copy here. So the increased costs will, according to a draft budget papers, be... Recovered through uplifting the charge for the pass. What does yes. what does that mean? It Re- means recovered through uplifting the charge for the pass. Means you'll pay more. Wow. For it. But you know, uplifting the charge either confuses people or makes it sound like it's not going to be as painful as it is. Well, uplifting the charge sounds like it's removing the charge rather than increasing yes, I suppose the charge. You, I don't know. Is, is there, could you downlift the charge? Yeah, I don't think downlift's a word. Down, we'll, we'll invent a downlift for the charge. But, you know, it's it's one of these little things that I always, I've got a bugbear about is, you know, speaking in kind of you know, language that people understand. And, you know, obviously councils don't like increasing the charge for services that they provide, and this applies to this uh, particular... Uh, scheme for the uh, travel pass used by school children, but uh, uh, uplifting means you're paying more. Yeah, and then obviously nobody wants to pay more, but, but Kafkaesque language to confuse things yes. doesn't exactly help yeah. anybody, does it? No. Yeah. So if you are having to pay for a young person's travel pass, unlucky you. Yes, uh, on a serious point, we don't yet know how much they're going to increase the... What's, I think it's called the Kent Travel Saver Pass now. It was the Freedom Pass. Uplifting uh, the charge of the Kent Travel Saver. Yes. Um, uh, it's sort of been rebranded, you know, to make it sound um, sort of... A bit, give it, make it a more com- sort of commercial kind of uh, thing. Mm. Well... Not, not commercial, but less... It's not... A, it's, trying, it's like when you go to your leisure centre. Uh, your leisure centre. Did you go to your leisure centre, Ollie? I don't know whether you do. No, you? I'm really lazy. <laughs> right. But if you go to a council leisure centre, work out in the gym or whatever, or have a swim in the pool... You don't really know that that's a gym operated by the council. So they're trying to cover that yes. up a little bit. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll obviously keep you up to date with, with updates on that and, and all uh, political updates across the county. Thank you, Paul, for joining me. Thank You're welcome. Thank you for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Talking Points, Ken's Politics Podcast. 